think there's about five people that I know of that have started the CPR AED online course and are going to get certification, and that will be at 10 o'clock on, I believe it's at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, and that's going to be at the CrossFit 1525 gym. If you know where SEAL security is on Blaylock, just north of Long Point, it's in the warehouse behind that building, but you need to park in the front because that's where they're parking places. So I've I've sent out email to those whom I know are taking it in the process of getting that completed, ready for uh, ready for for Saturday morning. Also, our annual congregational meeting is on Sunday morning, so please try to be here and show up. Uh, there's not much to vote on except we have uh, deacons to reappoint, and so that's always important. We need to have a quorum. Then also the Republican primary is coming up. I hope you all registered to vote because yesterday I think was the last day you could register to vote. The primary is on March 3rd, and early voting is from February 18th to 28th. So please sign up. And then the Chafer Conference is coming up. I heard from Connie today that there's a lot of names of people who have signed up that she does not recognize, along with a lot of names that she does recognize. But that means there's a lot of new people. And I know personally of about six or seven new uh, people that are coming because of the topic and because of the speakers. So I think we may have a very large turnout for this particular conference. So we definitely need volunteers. So if you'd like to help, go to the Dean Bible Ministries website, go to through the different pages to the to the Chafer Conference page, and then sign up as a volunteer, register as a conference volunteer, and that should take that take care of that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are uh, walking with the Holy Spirit. Often we talk about this using the phrase in fellowship, which has been grossly misunderstood, I think, by many of us over the years. Uh, one way we misunderstood it, it just is if we're, you know, if we're in the right room, something's going to happen. So if this room is the fellowship room and we sin and we're out in the hall, then just confess sin and we get back in here and then we're automatically going to grow and that's not how it works. The other thing to realize, and I've just sort of had my thinking expanded on this, running into some, doing some more study and running into some more information, I have often used, I think Sunday morning, even before I read this, uh, used the term partnership. And uh, sometimes you'll read something and just somebody will just say one phrase. We, when we're walking by the Spirit in fellowship, what that means is that because we're in right relationship with God, we are walking in partnership with him in accomplishing his plans and purposes in our life and in history. It is an active partnership. It's not a passive partnership on our side. That's why you have these phrases like walking in the light or walking 
by means of the Word or walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Walking is a present active imperative. That means it's up to our volition to walk. It's not a passive thing at all. It's not sitting in fellowship. It's walking in that partnership with God to fulfill his plan for our lives and plan for the church in the church age, the corporate body. So that's just an important dimension to tweak in your head as you think about what it means to be uh, enjoying fellowship with God. That means you're partnering, you're working in active partnership in the pursuit of his plan for your life and in pursuit of God's plan uh, in the church age. So before we begin to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit, we need to make sure we are uh, back into that position of active partnership with the Father, so we need to uh, confess sin if necessary. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to in times of difficulty, that we can come to you in times when we are uh, challenged to solve problems, situation difficulties, when we face uh, disasters in our life, as we see in this uh, chapter, this section of chapters in Second Samuel, uh, Absalom's conspiracy and rebellion is certainly a disaster in David's life. And what we see as we go through this are the... Uh, mechanics of the conspiracy of, of rebellion against authority. And that's what all sin is. It's a rebellion against your authority. We see the mechanics of that as it sort of goes to seed and expands in some of its worst, uh, worst expressions in this rebellion against uh, Absalom's father, rebellion against God, rebellion against uh, everything that the nation of Israel is supposed to stand for. And yet we see in contrast David with uh, sorrow, but still a relaxed mental attitude, application of the word skillfully in wisdom, the contrast between the fool and the wise. Help us to see these things, and may God the Holy Spirit help us to uh, make them a part of our thinking, part of our um, approach to life, that we too can be wise uh, servants of you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight we're in chapter 15 of Second Samuel. Moving on from chapter 14. I started off last time looking at some Proverbs, and that really helps shape a certain framework approach to this section. The writers of Scripture are not unfamiliar with what's in Proverbs or that kind of a thinking. It wasn't put down or written down uh, perhaps until later as Solomon wrote it. But nevertheless, these Proverbs, these sayings were still circulating. David was the one who originated that as he taught that to uh, to Solomon as Solomon was a child and Solomon was growing up. And so there's this understanding within the mentality of an Israelite of the difference between being wise and being a fool. And the fool is the person who lives on the, 
on the lusts of his sin nature. And this is exemplified, or one way in which this happens is exemplified by Absalom. On the other hand, we have wisdom. Wisdom isn't just knowledge. Knowledge comes first, then wisdom. It's the old saying that about uh, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You all know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato and an avocado are fruits. Wisdom is not putting them in a fruit salad. But real wisdom is separating them out, mixing them together, and making guacamole. So that's real skill. That's a pretty good way to remember basics on the difference between knowledge and, and wisdom. And, and so we see that wisdom is skill. Wisdom in the Bible is skill at applying the word. So we have to learn the word. We have to internalize the word. We have to practice the word. That's how you become skillful. Think about anything in life that we have that's a skill. Maybe it has to do with coding with a computer. Maybe it has to do with uh, athletics. Maybe it has to do with music. Maybe it has to do with cooking. But you do it over and over and over again. You learn it more proficiently, and you do it more proficiently, and it develops a skill. That's how wisdom is. It's the practice of walking uh, walking by the Spirit. So we see this is part of what the writer of Samuel is showing us in this, is the contrast between the fool, the foolishness of Absalom, who's operating on the lusts of the flesh, and David, who clearly has operated at times on the lust of the flesh. He's committed some gross sins, but it's not like he's, he's living there, okay? And that's a difference. The fool lives in his carnality. The wise person may commit horrible sins. The believer may commit horrible sins, but he doesn't stay there. And there needs to be forgiveness, and there needs to be moving on. We get forgiveness from God, but there also needs to be, be forgiveness from other believers. One of the sad things that's been commented on by so many, many uh, pastors, good, solid pastors over the years, is that the problem with the church is that, uh, that we shoot, each, shoot the wounded instead of encouraging the wounded and strengthening the wounded. And I was talking with a pastor last week, and we were talking about a good friend and fellow pastor, and I didn't know this aspect. This other pastor had had a, had a, uh, a sin, not unlike David's, and it had not been discovered for about 15 years. And the way it was discovered was bad because somebody was searching through his email to find something bad about him that he could use to clobber him with. And so that whole thing came to light, and he lost the church that he was pastoring, but this friend that I was with happened to be at, um, at the school where he had taught, and somebody came up and said that they had seen him, or, or, or this other pastor had come onto campus to get something and been there, and then the, the two pastors got together and talked and were very friendly, gave each other a hug and went on their way, and other people ostracized this other pastor because he wasn't, because he was so accepting. How could you be so accepting of him. Look at what he did. See, that's how the church operates in too many cases. It's vindictiveness, it's anger, it's resentment. They, they, they're so loaded with their own mental attitude sins that they can't see that they're doing the same kind of malicious thing to their soul 
that's just as bad as what the other person did. Jesus said he was without sin, cast the first stone. And so what you see is a lot of people who are sinners throwing stones at other believers. And that's, um, that's just terrible. We have to come to deal with people in grace, and that's part of wisdom. And dealing with people in resentment and anger and hatred and bitterness, that's, that's just carnality. That's, that's just as bad. So we get to this chapter in the midst of this section from 14 through 18, which is Absalom's conspiracy and rebellion against David. And, of course, we know that this is all generated by Absalom's sin nature. This is so insightful. What we're going to read in chapter 15 seems like it's just coming right off the pages of, of the Internet, the pages of whatever it is you're reading. I won't accuse you of reading the New York Times or the Houston Chronicle because I know better. Uh, at least I hope you're not reading those, those rags. But uh, that's what we're seeing here. It is, it is exemplified in what has happened in, in Iowa today. Can you imagine 40 years ago your parents' reaction to knowing that the top candidate was a homosexual married to a man, a male homosexual married to a man, and he gets the highest percentage of votes in a caucus in a statewide election and number two is a is a Marxist, a communist. Now, a lot of people say that, oh, well, Bernie Sanders isn't a communist. Well, you know, go read a few things about Bernie Sanders. Somebody who goes in the 60s, or maybe it was the 50s, no, probably the 60s, and takes their honeymoon in Moscow in the heart of communist Russia, and you're saying they're not a Marxist or a communist, you better go get an education before you start talking or, or voting. And then runner-up is not too far right from that. I mean, she's just a breath away from being just as bad as Bernie Sanders. So the top three people are just horrendous, and they want to overturn the nation. That's what they want to do. It is a conspiracy on the left to overturn the tremendous, remarkable government we've been given by our forefathers in the Constitution. It wasn't perfect, and they made provision for changing it and having amendments and straightening things out that they couldn't straight, straighten out like, like slavery. But they knew that, that that was a foundation. It's lasted for 200 years, and, or over 200 years, and that's more than most, most nations last. In fact, we're right at the edge of, 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 of a record for any, for any nation. But we see in a smaller case what's happening with Absalom in this chapter is just exactly what we see happening uh, in, in our nation. And to foreshadow this, I want to first go to 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. This is when the nation of Israel uh, rejects Sam, Samuel, rejects his sons as, as future leaders, and says that they want to have a king like everybody else. And we see this run through a certain segment of our political uh, culture today that they want to be like Europe. Aren't the Europeans wonderful? Don't they have a great culture? Well, that was the whole point in found, the founding of the United States was to get away from Europe and not do things the way they, they did because they saw the horrors of it, the, the state-controlled religion, uh, state-controlled church, the anti-Semitism that ran rampant throughout all of Europe due to the uh, replacement theology of the Roman Catholic Church. All of this led to just uh, the, the, the civilization, the culture of Western Europe by the time of the Reformation was just a canker on the human race, and it was terrible. 
And so, so this is the kind of thing, though, that, got, that was predicted by, um, by, by Samuel. Because the people that left and came to the United States did not want to have a king, did not want to have a government, did not want to have a culture like anybody else. They wanted to build a biblical culture from the ground up, building on a, on a Christian biblical worldview. And that, uh, they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect in their theology. They weren't perfect in a lot of aspects. But they understood that theoretically, if we're going to have a solid, stable, productive, free culture and society, then what you have to do is you've got to uh, build this on a theocentric biblical worldview and not on the pagan concepts of government and the pagan concepts of rulership. And so Israel failed that test, and they wanted to have a king like everybody else. And so God told Samuel, remember, he said, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Uh, but this is the thing that that uh, you need to tell them. So Samuel's going to warn them about what what's going to happen. And he says uh, down in verse 11, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. The, the king is going to act like a king. He's going to act like a pagan king. We're going to see this uh, as we go through, but I want to remind you of the whole section before we get into it with Absalom. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He'll set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Now, I I didn't bring this out when I taught this, but it is the government who is telling everybody what their career is going to be. It's the government that's telling them that some of you are going to be in the military, Others of you are going to be farmers. Others of you are going to be in the uh, weapons business. And others of you are going to come and work in the bureaucracy and building this this huge bureaucracy. And every bureaucracy in history has always turned into a swamp, which is what we've got today. It turns into a quagmire of bureaucrats who think they know more about running the country than the elected officials. And in some cases they do because I don't have a lot of... uh, a lot of respect for the intelligence of many of our elected elected officials. But anyway, that's the back, backdrop to what is being illustrated in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And remember the other thing that's being displayed here is this issue of the sin nature, that the, the sin nature is driven by lust patterns. That's the motivation of your sin nature, my sin nature, everybody's sin nature is we're driven by all these different lust patterns. And your lust patterns may be different from the lust patterns of the person sitting next to you, and that's probably true. Everybody's going to be different. We produce a lot of morality, otherwise called human good. It's not produced by God the Holy Spirit in our lives as we walk with him. Uh, Pharisees produced a lot of morality. There are a lot of people who are moral, but they're spiritually dead. So it can't be anything other than a product of the sin nature. There's an area of weakness that produces personal sins, overt sins, sins of the tongue, and mental attitude sins. And we all tend to trend at different times to one of two directions, either towards moral degeneracy, where we're so full of ourselves and we think we're so righteous and so good and we have our own set of asceticism and legalism, 
And even the radical antinomian left has its set of legalism and false standards that everybody has to adhere to. And if you don't, then they're just going to cut you out and they're going to ridicule you and run you down and blackball you on social media and say horrible things about you because you haven't followed their, their antinomian legalism. That may sound like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. Even, uh, even the mafia has standards. They're not our standards, but they're their standards. So even the licentious people have standards. They're just antinomian standards. Or we go in that direction. We have to always remember as believers that the fleshly lusts war against the soul. They, the sin nature wants to corrupt and destroy us and t- tell us that it's really better because we have this, we're, we're so self-absorbed we're into, uh, you know, we, we are trying to indulge ourselves. We get self-absorbed, so we're self-indulgent. And then because of our self-indulgence, we, we justify it, so we're, we're into self-justification. And that leads to self-deception. And that leads to living in a total fantasy world, which is evidenced by many politicians, not just certain ones in certain parties, but many, because anybody who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness is living in a fantasy world. They're psychotic, actually, and we've got a country filled with people who are psychotics. And this is what's happening with Absalom, because he thinks he can actually overthrow the throne. He, he knows that God has... Uh, appointed his father David. He knows the whole story. He's been told all the truth, but he thinks that he can run it himself and he can get himself uh, appointed by the people to be the king and everything will work out. He's just living in a fantasy world. There's no way in God's creation or God's world that that's ever going to happen, but he's convinced himself he could. So this is just a form of psychosis. It's sin nature driven psychosis. There's no such thing as mental illness. There's just sin nature neurosis and psychosis, and it's because we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So last time I gave you this breakdown of the structure in this section. First of all, Absalom flees. We saw that in the first part of chapter 14. Then Absalom returns, and that was at the end of chapter 14. And we see what he does when he returns into the first uh, 12 verses of chapter 15. And then in the rest of chapter uh, chapter 15 and 16 down to uh, through the end of chapter 17, we're going to see uh, what happens while David flees. And then it's going to reverse itself and we'll see David return. Now we deal with some geographical locations here, so I just want to remind you of the location of some places. Geshur up here, which is to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee, up towards Damascus into the area where the Arameans are. This is the homeland of Absalom's mother. This is where he ran away to, uh, to hide out with his his, uh, grandfather there, which, of course, puts him in a position of danger, uh, a position of danger to David. And so he, he hides out there. And finally, that was the story in chapter 14, where Joab, uh, David's uh, somewhat controlling and at times vicious, violent, murderous general Joab, 
comes along and uh, gets this woman from Tekoa to come and set up a hypothetical uh, before David to get him to recognize that he really needs to bring bring Absalom home. David, in wisdom, recognizes he needs to bring Absalom home. But Joab has another agenda, and that agenda is to get Absalom back where he can watch him and, if necessary, take him out of the equation because he recognizes how how evil uh, Absalom is. Here we have just a different map here identifying Geshur in this area, what's called later Bashan, and now we call it the Golan Heights going all the way up into uh, into uh, Aramea. So just to remind you what we looked at a minute ago in First uh, Samuel 8, 11, uh, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. And this was true of two of David's sons. This was uh, three of them. It was true of Absalom, and that's what we read when we look at chapter 15, verse 1. After this happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now look at that. How many men? 50. There must be something to that because in 1 Kings 1, 5, long after Absalom is dead, and by this time David is dead, and he's got it, or he's dying, and he has a son, Adonijah, who wants to uh, take the throne. And so we read, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, and when you see exalted himself, read that in, in arrogance. That's the operation of arrogance, self-exaltation. The son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and what? Not 40, not 30, not 60, not 100, but 50 men. There must be something about the number 50 that was significant, 50 men to run before him. So he's taking on all of the trappings of a pagan king, and that involves involves chariots. And later Solomon did the same thing, but to a much larger degree. He had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he set up these uh, chariot corps in places like Megiddo and other places, uh, Gezer, other places in Israel to guard the borders. So what we see at the very end of chapter 14 is that finally David welcomed Absalom back into the court, but this is more of a formality. And we read at the end last time that Absalom came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is just a pro forma uh, civil ritual to identify the fact that he's now accepted back into court, but he's not necessarily welcome. David is not at all pleased with him. And what we see on Absalom's part is that this is part of his plan. Now he's accepted back into court, and then he's going to start the second stage, which is what we see in fifteen one, where he gathers together these chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. He's taking on the trappings of a pagan king, and this is always what you see in Israel, the struggle between a king who is following the Mosaic law, who is a godly king, a righteous king, that's not a perfect king, 
but he is one who seeks God. David sought God, and God said he was a man after his own heart. Absalom doesn't care about God. We don't know his spiritual state, if he was saved or not. That doesn't enter into the picture, but he doesn't care what God's plan and purposes are. He's in complete rebellion because he has his his ambitious goal to be the king. This is a wrong idea. His ambition is all self-serving, and he wants the power. He's driven by power lust. He's driven by other aspects of lust in his sin nature. And he knows that even though he has been uh, formally welcomed back into court, that he's never really going to be accepted because he murdered David's son, Amnon. And he knows that no matter what, that will not be forgotten. And he's been too much of a problem in other areas. He'll never be king. And and uh, he's a problem because he, in terms of heirship and inheritance, because he's committed the same sins that David has. And that brings with it a lot of problems. As I pointed out last time, David no longer has the moral or spiritual high ground in the nation, although God's favor is still with him. God's grace is still supporting, protecting, providing for David because God's grace isn't as self-serving as the sin nature of people. And he's not, God is not self-righteous. He, he's dealing with David in, in grace. And so David is slowly strengthening himself spiritually, but he has uh, really hurt himself, and as a result, the people don't aren't following his leadership, and they are questioning him. How can we follow him? He committed murder in a, in the small population of Israel at the time, and the size of of Jerusalem. It, it, David could not hide that. So it's it's just obvious that that David's a problem. So they're, they're wondering what the future is going to hold. And when it comes to Absalom, there's just been this chain reaction that's occurred. First, there's the rape of Tamar, and then he goes and he murders Tamar's, um, murders uh, Amnon, who raped her, who's the son of the king and the oldest son, so the one who would be uh, the designated heir at that point, even though God's already told David it's going to be Solomon. And so Absalom is going to try to take the power away from David, and he knows just how to work the people. Absalom is just brilliant. If Absalom had run in the Iowa caucuses today, he would have won. Hands down, he would have gotten 70, 80% of the vote because he knows how to work people. He is smooth, and he does. He begins in verse 1, but this goes on for four years, and David is not ignorant of any of this. David is an, is an old warrior, and he understands what Absalom is doing. He may not have thought that Absalom would go as far as he was going, but he certainly understood what, what Absalom was, was trying to do. And so what we see here is that Absalom begins to manipulate uh, manipulate the people. And so one of the first things he does is he makes himself out to act like a king. And so he amasses chariots and horsemen. Uh, this is the same thing that will come up later. And when you think of chariots, don't think of the kind of chariots you see that Hollywood produces in their films. There, This is a depiction of, of Ramses II, the Battle of 
uh, the Battle of, I think it's Carchemish, and this is taking place in uh, roughly about 1250 or so B.C., and this is on the wall of the, uh, of the temple at Abu Simbel. And this, you see the chariot here on the right. You've got two wheels, and you have what looks like a fairly flimsy frame. It's not this large, uh, strong-looking uh, chariot. I, we saw various different chariots in the museums and uh, when we were in uh, Egypt looking something like this. This is not something that is providing a lot of protection for, for the rider. Okay, and it looks like if you, the horse hit a speed bump, you would go flying. So this is, is uh, where they were at that particular time. What's interesting is how the Bible presents the, the worldly kings, the pagan kings, are the kings that amass chariots and horses. The warning of Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 is that the king will come and amass chariots and horses. But Saul doesn't do that. David doesn't do that. Adonijah, Absalom, Adonijah, and Solomon uh, did that. And what they're doing is they're emulating pagan kings. And what we're really seeing here in the backdrop of this, this whole chapter is the challenge between paganism, which is the thought of the fool, and biblical wisdom, which is exemplified by David. So this is a tremendous morality play. It has tremendous lessons. If you're a parent, there's a lot of things that you can teach and show out of this to your children in terms of Absalom does not respect authority. Absalom is only concerned about uh, doing what he wants to do and his own self-gratification. And on the other hand, you have David who is very wise in the way he is conducting himself as he leaves uh, Jerusalem. I ran across this statement by Robert Bergen, who's written a commentary on 2 Samuel, and he makes this observation. The Egyptians, and then he gives references in Exodus 14.9 to 15.21, Deuteronomy 11.4, Joshua 24.6, northern Canaanites, Joshua 11.4 through 9, Judges 4.15, that would be Sisera and his army because they had the chariot corps, uh, Judges 5, 19 to 22, and Arameans in 8, 4, and 10, 18, that would be in 2 Samuel, all used them unsuccessfully in battle against Israel. That was an interesting observation. They, were, they all out-armored Israel. They had better weapons. They had greater maneuverability on the battlefield, but they didn't defeat Israel. Why? Because the battle was the Lord's. And that's a really important principle. So we see that, that on the one hand, Absalom represents this idea of leadership and kingship is based on your personal power, your personal uh, reputation, and your, your personal skill to put yourself into power. And instead of trusting in God versus David, who's elevated by God to the kingship and whose line is promised as being the kingly line, because of God's grace, not because of his power, his intellect, his skill as a warrior, or any of these other things. So Bergen goes on to say, uh, thus when Absalom linked them with himself, that is the chariots and the horses, he was joining his ambitions with the symbols of hostility against the Lord and Israel and with ultimate failure. God's work has to be done God's way. 
and you don't go out and try to do it the way of the pagans. And this is a lesson that so many Christians, so many theologians, so many pastors don't understand. There are these super churches, these mega churches we see all over the country are pastors who have built using the techniques of salesmanship, motivational psychology, and self-promotion. They are not built, built by waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord. As the psalmist says, uh, they labor in vain who build a, ha- build a house unless the Lord builds it. I would ha- rather have a church of uh, 15, 20, 100, 150 people who were there because the Lord built it than to have a church where I had uh, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, and, and I did it myself. I did it through some sort of... Uh, uh, business skill or salesmanship. And I always remember when I was uh, down, I had moved back to Houston, I was looking for a church. I'd been ordained at Tomball Bible Church where Harry Leaf was the pastor. And Harry said, told me, Robbie, anybody who's got a good personality and skill and some know-how can build a huge organization. But that doesn't mean God the Holy Spirit has anything to do with it. And that is really important. We live in a world that wants to quantify everything by numbers, wants to quantify everything by, by money, uh, by how many people are there, how beautiful the buildings are, and how much money you bring in. Those aren't God's standards. And that's not the point of, of the ministry. We are to serve the Lord, and God's going to give the increase, and we need to trust in that. So in the first first verse, Absalom is building his his retinue, he, his his. Uh, symbols of power and prestige. And then in verse 2, we see how he is, he is working uh, the people. It says, now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. Now, something that uh, we have to understand here is that in the ancient world, some of you have been to Israel with me, and we've been to, uh, for example, Megiddo, and you walk in and you see the gates. There's a double gate there for protection. You, some Some of the other uh, places that we've we've gone to at Hatzor, at Gezer, places like that, we've seen uh, the gates. That's where the city officials would meet. That's where they would have car. People would come in from the farms. Remember, only the people who ran the administration lived in the cities. The people, most of the people lived on the farms. They would have problems. They would come in. They would go to the gate. That's where the magistrates, the leaders were, and they would present their problem, their cases, and they would get some some sort of ruling. So Absalom would rise early and stand at the gate. Is that what it says? No, he goes to the way to the gate. He goes down the road a little bit. He's going to catch people as they're coming in to Jerusalem, not at the gate because that's where the city officials are. He's going to go meet them 100, 200 yards down the road, and then he's going to start manipulating them, and he's going to start playing them. His whole ambition is to accrue power uh, power to himself, and so he is going to uh, schmooze with the people. He's going to come out there and say, oh, what's your problem? Uh, you, oh, you want to bring a, a lawsuit against somebody? Well, uh, I'm I'm just real sorry, but but the king's not not available now. What city did you say you were from? Uh, who are your parents? What's your tribe? Oh yeah, I remember them. I had a I had some friends who knew them, or I had a 
uh, a cousin who did something with them. And so he starts schmoozing them and making it like he's their friend and he cares. But a person who's operating on self-absorbed arrogance doesn't care about other people. He's narcissistic. He's just caring about his own own personal prestige and power. And so he has no care about doing anything that's really going to benefit them. And he uh, spends the time just simply talking down David and talking himself up. He is concerned, uh, as we see in the next, uh, the next verse, that he's going to say there's no real justice here uh, from the king. Uh, and in verse uh, 3 we read, uh, Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right. It's just. Notice how everybody wants to talk about justice. But you have to have a standard for justice. Justice needs to find its, its shape and its boundaries in the character of God. You have to properly understand the Word of God to get that. It is not what makes you feel good. It is not your personal sense of justice that I've been wronged or somebody's wrong. And you need to understand the biblical worldview that a lot of people are suffering, quote, injustice because of their own bad decisions, because of their own sin, because of their own laziness. Remember, Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what the Scripture says. Sounds harsh, but it goes to the first divine institution of personal responsibility. If you're not living a responsible life, then you need to reap the consequences of it. So maybe through the negative circumstances, you'll straighten yourself out. And, uh, and so the Absalom is commiserating with their sense of justice. It, when he gets into, if he got into power and was in this place, he wouldn't be conforming his sense of justice to their sense of justice. And this is what you see politicians do, is we're going to take care of you. We're going to do what you want to do. We're going to give you, you want health care? You don't want to work for it? Well, we're going to give you universal health care. We'll give Medicare for everybody. I'm not going to have a show of hands here, but I, I wish I could. It'd be quite illustrative. When you were working, did you pay more or less I'll answer the question, it's rhetorical, more or less for your health insurance. You're paying a lot less. You get Medicare, and it's no cheap thing. It's expensive. You've got to get Medicare. You've got to get Medicare Advantage. You've got to get all the other additional bennies with it, and you end up spending more money for Medicare than you did when you were in private insurance. This is, this is horrible. Uh, why do we want to give everybody Medicare? It's terrible. It does cover anything. You used to get a physical every year. You can't get a physical every year when you're on Medicare because they want you to get get various diseases that you can't catch in time, so you'll die and get off the dole. It's it's a government ripoff. So, you know that's but that's how it's played. We're going to do wonderful things for you. We're going to give you. Uh, better jobs, you're going to make more money, we're going to raise the minimum wage, and we're going to um, give you more uh, welfare, more food stamps, and all of these other things. But that comes from somewhere, and they, of course they never talk about that. They're just schmoozing with people to give them what they want. And Absalom is a, he's a professional at it. Look, your case is good and right, but oh, there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Uh, sad. David's gotten old. He's compromised. He doesn't care. He's just up there in his palace doing whatever he wants to do, but he really doesn't care about you. But I care about you. 
You know, I, I want to take care of you. And that's what he says in the next verse. In verse 4, he says, Oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me that I would give them justice. He's a, he was a social justice warrior before people knew what social justice was. And he's evil. That's what, it, that's what social justice is. It's just evil because it destroys respect for oneself. It destroys uh, individual responsibility. It leads to the breakdown of marriages. It leads to the breakdown of the family. And it leads to the breakdown of a nation and a culture. And so, but that's what Absalom is doing because he just wants them to, to vote for him. He wants them to be on his side. And so then we come to verse 5. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. He's not just kissing the babies. He's kissing everybody. He is a consummate politician to get everybody on his side and turn everybody against David. And that's the summary in verse 6. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. He meets them down the road so he can poison their minds against David and turn them to him uh, before they ever get close to David. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now that last phrase is really interesting because that's usually the phrase that is associated when the army of Israel calls up. They're called the men of Israel. So he is... He is engaged in, in building a power base among the men who would serve in the, in the army and in the military. So what we see here, first of all, Absalom deceived the people by acting like their friend, like he really cared about them. Now, there are politicians, statesmen, who do care about people, who seriously want to help people, and they recognize that government, as Ronald Reagan said, uh, government is not their, their friend. Uh, government always messes things up. Uh, so he, Absalom has false compassion and false sympathy. He really doesn't care. He just wants to say all the right things to get the people on his side. Secondly, he falsely accuses David of not caring and of being out of touch. This has gone, I mean, politicians on both sides of the aisle have done this through the years. Uh, right now, we've just, we're, we're seeing this vote on this impeachment tomorrow, and there's no evidence. There's no evidence. In fact, there's no crime. Uh, anybody, I have pastors who listen to me. I may have some liberal pastors who listen to me, but let me tell you something. If you don't agree with Alan Dershowitz's speech, then you can't preach the Bible because the methodology that Alan Dershowitz used in his opening statement to demonstrate that there was no crime was a literal, grammatical, historical methodology that hung on the original intent of the writers of the Constitution. That's the same methodology every pastor should be using when they're in the pulpit. But if they can't exegete the Constitution the same way, they need to get a job digging ditches and not influencing people. Absalom falsely accused David of not caring and being out of touch. It is projecting your sins on somebody else. Absalom's the one who didn't care and didn't want to be bothered with the people. He just wanted to use them to put him in a position of power. Third, Absalom took on the trappings of power and authority. 
He wanted to look like a king and act like a king so people would think of him as a king, as someone who would bring them the kind of justice that would make them happy, not a true biblical justice that conformed to the law. Fourth, Absalom claims that if he were king, it would be so much better. Just vote me into office and I'll solve all the problems. I will make it so much better. Uh, There will be a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage and you'll all have a 60-inch TV and Medicare for all and we'll all be happy. Uh, Typical, superficial, deceptive promises. He is cunningly deceptive. And that's what deceives people. That's what gets people in the trap. So we'll look down to verse 7. It came to pass, your new King James says 40 years. That was in the Masoretic text. Uh, Other manuscripts, for example, the Septuagint, uh, Syriac, Josephus, all have four years, which is probably accurate. It came to pass after four years that Absalom said to the king, So he's been down in Geshur uh, for a number of years, and then I think he was down there in Geshur. Let me see back. uh, uh, Okay, I just missed where that was. But he stayed down in Geshur with his grandfather for I think it was uh, three or four years, and then he's back in Jerusalem for two years and doesn't see the king's face, and now he is conspiring for four years. So this has gone on for close to a decade of this hostility and conspiracy from uh, Absalom uh, against the king. And now he goes to the king because you have to make it look good. You have to cover yourself. You have to have witnesses that are going to bear false witness and lie about the charges you're bringing up against against the king or against the president so that you'll make yourself look good. And you have to cover it all Uh, with the veneer of religion in some cases, and how many politicians, left and right, use God and use going to church as simply a way to convince people that, oh yeah, I'm a good Christian like you are. I know you want a Christian uh, congressman or a Christian judge or a Christian, um, you know, a Christian king, but uh, so I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to make it look good, but that's all it is. It's just a veneer. By the way, speaking of Christian judges, when I went to Israel in 2013, um, I met a guy named Dustin Rowe. And uh, Dustin is, was, you may remember this. I actually remembered seeing this. I didn't remember him or his name or anything, but I remembered some big special deal they had on Fox News around 2020, 2021, something like this, of this youngest mayor ever elected in America. He got elected mayor of this little nothing town in uh, South... I can't remember the name of it now. Do you remember the name of it? Some little Indian name. Tishamanga, Tishamanga, Oklahoma. And... uh, he was he was the mayor for a while, and he was a lawyer, and he was well-connected in Oklahoma. And so he was one of those invited on this APAC trip to, to Israel. And we meet and we talk once a year, once every couple of years. And, and about four months ago, he sent me an email, and he said, something's going on, I'd just like you to pray for it. Didn't give me anything more than that. 
Last Friday, I found out that he was uh, appointed by the uh, governor of Oklahoma to be a Supreme Court justice in Oklahoma. That is great. This is a guy with he's extremely pro-Israel. He believes in a literal interpretation, strict constructionism uh, of the law and of the Constitution, a man of great integrity. And uh, that's just great that we see people uh, like that who get elevated to these positions. There's not uh, anything about him that I would ever think was self-serving, just the opposite. So we need men like that who are great statesmen, and so that's great. So uh, back to the passage, verse, verse 7, Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. Now, why does he want to go to Hebron? Clue number one, he's lying. It's not to pay a vow. He's just using the cloak of religiosity to cover for cover. He wants to go to Hebron because that's where David was first crowned king over Israel. First, for the first seven years, he's king in Hebron. And then uh, finally, the other tribes accept him as their king. And then he went to, to Jerusalem. So he wants to start off in David's starting point in Hebron. He, he understands all the symbolism and he's working it for all that he can. And so he explains this, gives all of his uh, deception to David. Your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace, shalom. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, here's a map of the central part of Israel. Here is Jerusalem over here. Here's the Dead Sea right here. It's only about 14 miles from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. So you have to understand, Israel's not very large. It's smaller than the state of New Jersey. Hebron is right down here in the hill country of Judah. This is why that's where David started from the tribe of Judah. Hebron is, anybody want to guess how far Hebron is from Jerusalem? 20 miles. How long is it going to take an army to cover 20 miles to go take out the king? Not very long. And you have a straight road because the road that goes here is it's called the Way of the Patriarchs. And it's the same road that runs across the spine of the nation that goes all the way from down in Beersheba. This is the road that Abraham walked uh, when he went from Shechem and then walked down to uh, where he worshiped the Lord between Bethel and Ai, and then down by Jerusalem, which is where Moriah is located, and then he goes on down uh, to Hebron, and uh, Abraham lived near there and further south near near uh, uh, Be- uh, Beersheba. So this this tells us why he wants to go down here, and then the text is going to get into the details. As soon as he got there, he sent out spies, undercover agents, Read the ancient swamp. They're not sold to David's administration. They are hostile to David, and they are loyal to Absalom. And they are sent to all the tribes of of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Now, this has been, we've read 10 verses. 
this cover, it takes a lot of time, four years to set all this up. He's been schmoozing with everybody outside the gates. He's been building his network of loyalty in all of the major villages and towns around Israel. He's got his men in place and leadership in place, and he sends out this spies. When the trumpet goes, when the sig- signal goes, then what you're going to do is you're going to raise up and announce that Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. Verse 11, and with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. See, this is the other thing that happens in politics then and now, is you have people who do not understand, in government, who don't understand how they are being manipulated to do the wrong thing because they're working in departments, they're working in sections that are headed by somebody who's in the swamp, who's a spy for the other side. And so they get caught up in doing things that they think are right, but are wrong. They have no clue how they're being used. They have no clue about the manipulation. There's no integrity in a bureaucracy. And that's what has happened. That's people have been. I remember hearing this in the '60s when I was a teenager. That the problem we've got is when a president gets elected, that he's got all these positions loaded up with the appointees from the previous president, and so often they don't do anything about it. They just leave them there to run their own agenda. Personally, I think that every time a president goes into office, he needs to clean house and just fire everybody that the previous president appointed, not on the first day, but within the first two or three months, because they're going to, they have a, a distinct loyalty to the previous president and to the previous agenda. And so we see a lot of that going on today. So he's got these 200 men he brought down from Jerusalem. They want to go along innocently, and they don't know anything. This is verse 11. And then he's going to take another step. So he's going to call for Ahithophel. Now, this is really a slick move. Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite. Now, let me back up, and I'll show you where Gilo is located. Gilo is located down near Hebron, so it's right on the way. He's not very far away. It's maybe two or three miles. And he calls on Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel is an important figure. Ahithophel was one of David's mighty men. Ahithophel was more than likely Bathsheba's grandfather. There's some debate about that, but I think he was Bathsheba's grandfather. And he and and Absalom, I'm just guessing here, Absalom knows that Ahithophel has a grudge against David and what David did to Bathsheba and to Uriah. And so he's not, he's probably retired at this point. He's older and he's gone back to his farms in Gilo. And so Absalom is going to call him out of retirement and and Ahithophel is going to give uh, credibility and legitimacy to to Absalom's administration. This is real Machiavellian. We can we see this probably kind of thing going on in almost every administration, one degree or another. But I think in this one, we really have seen a lot going on, trying to turn back and reverse 
uh, the election of 2016. I don't care whether you like Trump, despise Trump, or whatever. He was elected according to the laws of the land. And that means you have to honor the king. That's what the New Testament says. And you have to respect the office even if you don't respect the individual that holds the office. And we've had to do that quite a bit in our lifetimes, respecting the individual, the uh, office, because the individual who's in the office is not necessarily worthy, worthy of our respect. So no matter what you think about the person, you honor the king. You are obedient to the government. That's stated several times in the New Testament, uh, Romans uh, uh, chapter uh, 13 and many other places. So we come down to uh, chapter, I mean, verse 10. We already hit that verse. So, so to summarize this, what Absalom does, he sends out spies throughout the land. He conspired to become, be proclaimed as the king and to get everybody to come onto his side. And then he deceived 200 men in David's administration uh, to join him. And what happens when he pulls them out of Jerusalem is that this is going to eviscerate David's administration. He's gotten all of his key people out of Jerusalem. Who's left for David to rely on uh, to, to run the nation? And the last point is that he beguiles Ahithophel to give him the appearance of legitimacy. And then uh, that's going to be an interesting story, which we'll get to next time. And so starting in verse 13, we get to the second half of the chapter. David is forced to flee Jerusalem and go into exile. And this is a fascinating uh, story, and there's some key people that we're going to run into uh, in, this, in this next section that we have to talk about. Uh, we're introduced to uh, a, a group of people uh, that are called the Carathites and the Pelathites, and the Gittites, and um, we also have uh, a guy named it- Ittai who wants to go with David. That's that's an interesting situation. There's a few things there that don't appear uh, obvious on the surface. Then you have the two uh, high priests, Zadok and Ab- uh, Abiathar, and then at the end we've got Hushai the Archite. And then you get into uh, chapter 16, we're going to talk about Mephibosheth's servant, Zeba, and then this guy, Shimei, who's throwing stones at the king. And it just gets real confusing, so we'll have fun when we go through that uh, next Tuesday night. But there's a lot of interesting little lessons here, because the lessons next week with David are to see his grace orientation, to see that he is wise and he's cunning, but not in a deceptive way. He understands the, what is happening, and he makes wise plans, whereas uh, Absalom has just been ruthlessly arrogant and deceptive and uh, cunningly deceptive against, the, the, uh, uh, against Israel, and he just wants the power for himself. That's the difference. David wants power for God. We see that very clearly in the next section. He still, his heart is for God. He is a man after God's own heart, but not Absalom. Absalom is a man after only serving his own selfish lusts and desires. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to study these things this evening, to understand the dynamics of the sin nature just as wicked and evil today as they were 
as they were in the ancient world, and the more things change, the more things stay the same. And because the real problem is the human heart, the sin nature, and its deceptiveness to everyone. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, as Jeremiah observes. Father, help us to wake up to our own trends of our sin nature, understanding the issues that are going on there spiritually, our need to be uh, more focused, devoted to you, focused on your word, and letting that shape our thinking, our motivations, and our actions. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.